So we're going to jump back into where we were starting. Now listen, we're still doing um, introductory information. And the reason that we're doing that is because so many people already have a preconceived idea of how they understand prophetic literature, especially the book of Revelation. And um, it's, there's a process in order to rightly understand it is, is the way that, that I feel like it's rightly done. There's a process that has to occur in most of our lives of unlearning. Um, and in order to unlearn, we kind of have to have an understanding of what it is we know. A lot of us know what we know because somebody from a platform has told you what to know, especially with regards to prophetic literature, or you've read it, or you've seen uh, Left Behind, or read Tim LaHaye's books, or something like that, or The Late Great Planet Earth, or something like that. And thank you. Are these up? Oh, cool. Um, and so we formed a concept of how to understand Scripture based on external input. And I can almost guarantee that most of us don't ever sit down and think about, hey, why do I believe this way? Why do I understand things in this capacity? And this is really important when you start talking about prophetic literature. Why do I understand prophetic literature the way I do? Well, chances, well, I would say in almost every case, you understand prophetic literature because you understand the Bible in a particular fashion. And unless you know how it is that you re read scripture for Rick just to come up here and start teaching Roman, uh, Revelation 1.1, there would be unsaid expectation in most of you to hear certain things and you won't hear them. And then all of a sudden the questions will start and things won't make sense. And so what we're trying to do is give you guys a segue into that particular teaching. You'll notice that the thing that Grace is passing out, the, the folder that we built last night, is uh, Revelation and Amillennial Perspective. And um, we are bringing it in from an Amillennial point of view. And we'll explain what millennialism, uh, millennialism is later on. Those are important. There are four major ones. And we'll talk about those. Uh, but right now we're talking about hermeneutics. How many of you remember from last week what hermeneutics is? What's the word hermeneutic? Yes. Yep, Bob. Okay, and that's an overarching concept. So hermeneutics has to do with the way that you understand. Oh, I don't have my marker. Um, I guess I'll use purple today. Um, hermeneutic. Uh, hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is the way that you understand the way that the Bible reads it, reads, okay? So, and there are four of them that we talked about, right? Can anybody name any of the four? Well, that's one of the subcategories. Reformed, Wesleyan, dispensationalism, and covenantal. Those are the four that I've decided to land on after my schooling. Um, because there are seven to ten of them that I think are subcategories to hermeneutics. And those are literal, um, spiritual, scripture, uh, scripture interprets scripture. The Old Testament is interpreted by the New Testament uh, allegorical, allegorical, um, all of these different ways, and I think those all fall under your different subtopics, okay, right? 
And then, um, so predominantly, most of us understand and read Scripture in a dispensational fashion. Most evangelical Western Christians read it in that fashion, and I'm going to tell you why today that you do that, or not necessarily that you, but why that we, as a collective church in the United States of America, tend to read the Bible that way. Now, exegesis, do you understand? Remember the word exegesis. Exegesis depends on your hermeneutic. So, within the construct of your hermeneutic, you will interpret, interpret the, the, the granularly the various passages of Scripture. So, your hermeneutic affects your exegesis. I know those are big 50-cent words, but it's good to stretch ourselves a little bit so that we... We understand why we do what we do. Now let, me, let me explain something to you, and I decided to tell you this little story before I got started so that you understand. I was raised under um, the Assemblies of God with a dispensational mindset, and um, there was a time where I had kind of burnt out from Christianity, and I was living in Seattle, and I just didn't want to have anything to do with it, and so I got a job with Microsoft as far away from ministry as I could get, doing computers on my own, flying all over the world. Um, <clears throat> And um, the Lord kept hammering on me to, you know, wooing me back. And I, I, uh, when the dot-com crash happened, I didn't have a job for 20, uh, it was almost two years, wasn't it, Grace? Two years. And I spent two years in a library re trying to figure out what it was I believed. And I came out completely different. Completely different because I chose to step away from what I'd always been told to believe and understand Scripture in a, as I understood it, or, or to figure it out. And the chances are that most people don't get that opportunity. That's just not realistic. But the point that I'm trying to make is, is that we as Christians believe a lot of what we believe because we've been told to believe that. And it, in these days, it's going to be, be required that we are able to stand on our own two feet and contend for what we believe because we know it. Because we know it. it because it, it resonates in our heart. Because when we speak it, there's passion behind it. When we say, I believe this, it's because you really do believe that. Does that make sense? So we take some time to understand what these are. Because you, you understand Scripture by a hermeneutic. And you exegete the various passages of Scripture based on your hermeneutic. And the, the problem is, is that most of us don't know what those terms are. Now, we also spoke of, that's my soapbox for this morning, but we also spoke of a couple of weeks ago, is scripture, is the revelation prophetic literature intended to be understood by the common man? And the answer to that is yes, and Revelation says it is, in the very first verse, the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. For what purpose? To reveal to us what's about to take place. So the intention of the writer is to show you something. Plainly, right? So when we're talking about hermeneutics, we need to understand Scripture. We need to conform to what, what the, the, the Bible says. This is to show you what must soon take place. Dispensationalism, which is what we're going to talk about today, the way that most of us understand Scripture, or not most of us, Western evangelicals understand Scripture, does this to Revelation. You have that picture? Anybody back there? I got a picture for you. 
That's what we do to Revelation. That's dispensation. That's a dispensational chart. It's called the Larkin chart. Is this easy? Does this reveal? Would this inform you about the things to come? Would most of you bother to read that? It's confusing. You have the seven trumpets. You have some stuff going on in here. You've got the bowls in Revelation. And then you have Satan and all the seven churches over here. And you've got, you know, dead people that are down here. And then they come up later over here. And you've got the millennial reign. And you've got Israel that's going on down here. And to make things worse, this guy then overlaid, and I don't know if I, if I can impose upon Seth to pull that one up, but there's another one that he overlays underneath that, the book of Daniel, and he parallels them. And the reason that dispensationalists do that is because they believe that Daniel's 70 weeks, which we won't get into a lot, are the parameters by which revelation is to be understood. So they interpret the New Testament by the Old Testament, which is a violation of basic hermeneutics. Okay, so the reason that I'm bringing that up is because in order to make things clear, this is the chart that they gave you. It's not very clear. But this is what most of you and most of us in Western Christianity believe. We hold to this chart and we just don't know it. And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you about what dispensationalism is as a hermeneutic, why it does this, and some of the issues that we find in dispensationalism to set the stage for a, an amillennial perspective. I'm trying to unteach some, some things that most of us understand. Does that make sense? Are we all okay? Before we jump, yes. Nineteen oh nine. Mm-hmm. It's um, and about that time after after Darwin with his theory of evolution, everything changed. The way that we look at, at the world around us, the way this need to classify and to order everything, and to me that's not confusing because I'm a science major and it makes sense. So and we, and so yeah. I, but I can also see what time period that thinking came out of. Yeah. Larkin was a mechanical engineer. Okay. <laughs> Said Doug. <laughs> Explains a lot, yeah. So, but this has been kind of something that I grew up with, and this is, this is kind of the, the chart that most people will refer to, or there will be variations of the Larkin chart in dispensationalism. Now, whether or not you understand it and whether or not you are, you know, you have a degree in mecha mechanical engineering or a science major or whatever, the, the point that I'm trying to make is, is that's complicated. Okay? That's very complicated and it's hard to figure out. Now, it, it even gets worse when you, when you underlay Daniel on that. It gets really wonky. Because in his chart, Daniel's toe, the, the, the image, the 90-foot image, Daniel, his toes grow. <laughs> over thousands of years. That's a bizarre picture. All right, so um, what is dispensationalism? Anybody know? Right, 
Dispensationalism is the idea that God does different things throughout time, and they're broken up by different, what they call economies. And um, we'll, we'll go through that in a minute, but let me just give you a definition. You guys have your notes there. Um, I'm going to try to stay to that outline as best as I can. Dispensationalism is defined as a theological system with a distinct hermeneutic. That's why I taught you what hermeneutic is. Um, that is much more than one view regarding the end times. It's much more. Uh, although it does encompass these things under dis uh, premillennial dispensationalism. As a comprehensive system, it influences the way any biblical text is read and understood. So, for you to understand Revelation like this forces you to understand the entire Bible accordingly. Of dispensationalism, um, it is the understanding of Scripture by means of seven dispensations or economies. All right, that's the that's a succinct definition. It breaks the Bible up into seven dispensations of uh, uh, redemption throughout history, and we'll go over those. So God breaks up. History into seven time periods. One, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Okay? These are called economies or dispensations. All right? And most of you will understand them when I start to lay them out. Most of you understand the Bible laid out in only three. But we'll talk about the seven here in a second. Let's give some history and some general in information about dispensationalism. It was a de uh, developed through the writings of John Darby. Anybody ever heard of John Darby? Okay. John Darby in the 19th century. And it was propagated by the means of the Schofield Reference Bible, first published in 1909. Prior to this, the pre predominant view uh, was called historic, um, um, the historic Protestant view, which is the covenantal and spiritual. So prior to 1909, when the newcomer on the block is this one, dispensationalism. Prior to that, there was a thing called, uh, was just called historic Protestantism, and it had to do with, with uh, um, um, covenant uh, theology uh, in, in a spiritual or an allegorical way of understanding prophetic literature, okay? Uh, the, day, the, the term derives from the Greek word oikonomia, um, which most of you don't care, but I'm going to tell you anyway, uh, or economy, because the hermeneutic divides God's workings in redemptive history into seven distinct economies or dispensations. Those who embrace this hermeneutic claim that the Bible cannot be properly understood apart from the recognizing the distinct periods because those periods unfold God's redemptive purposes throughout history. Okay, so that's, um, that's what they're saying. Dispensationalism is uniquely suited to draw correspondence between biblical prophecy and current events, and that's one of the reasons why it is so popular. Because by dispensationalism, we're able to identify various things in the Bible, or supposedly, various things in prophetic literature with things that are happening right now. 
Who's the Antichrist? Well, I think it's, when is Jesus coming back? Well, it's going to be. And there's a whole list of things that are called signs of the time. Right? And we project those going forward in dispensationalism, and we try to identify the things that were said in, like, Matthew 24 about the coming of those who would deceive and, you know, the signs and the stars, moons, and, and, the, sun, and, the, and the heavenly bodies and things like that. And we try to find those going on today, and then we draw parallels. And it becomes almost like a hunt-and-seek project using Scripture. And, and, you know, remember when you were driving across the states and you had that little map and you used to put the stickers on when you saw somebody's license plate? This predates most of you. Um, but it's kind of like that. I mean, we watch the world events, and then we run to the Bible to see if we can find it in the Bible. That's why this is popular, because it, it gives us current contextualization. We can say, ooh, this is happening right now. And it, it, it's almost, it almost adds a spark of anticipation. Amillennialism has a definite spark of anticipation, even more so than dispensationalism. And we'll get to that in a, in, in, in a while. But anyway... Um, dispensational movement was therefore fueled by the reestablishment of the state of Israel in 1948 and why that is so significant to dispensationalism will become clear as we go through this Um, and has grown in popularity particularly since 1967 coinciding with the Arab uh, Arab Israeli six day war and a few years later, in 1970, with the publication of Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you have read that book? See? Most of us have. A lot of us have. Classical premillennial dispensationalism. Classical. All right. As we've said, there are seven economies, and here they are. Where's my... There it is. Seven dispensations. All right? And I gave you a space to write all seven of them down if you wish to. The first one is the dispensation of innocence or freedom, which is Genesis 2, um, and it's prior to Adam's fall. So there was a dispensation of innocence that Adam was created into. All right. Second is the dispensation of conscience. Genesis 3. And spans the period from Adam to Noah. The next one is the dispensation of government or law from Noah. I'm sorry, dispensation of government. It's not law, it's government. And that's from Noah to Abraham. Fourth, is the dispensation of patriarchal rule. Some call it, or promise, because it's the Abrahamic promise. From Abraham to Moses. The next is the dispensation of the Mosaic law, and that spans the bulk of the time period in Scripture, from Moses to the coming of Christ, I won't draw that. Six, dispensation of grace, which is what we now live in, or the church age. And the last one 
is has to do everything with the term with this term here. Millennium, which is the dispensation of the kingdom. God's physical reign on the earth through Christ Jesus. Did I go too fast for anybody? Anybody need me to repeat any of that? Yes. I can. Uh, it's the dispensation of grace called the church age. I'm sorry. Sorry, you're right. Uh, dispensation of the kingdom. Kingdom. And that, and that has to do with millennial. The reign of Christ. Right, hang on a second. I've got a cold guy, so. All right. Hey, you turned me down. Way to go. All right. However, today in dispensationalism, there is a recognition of really only three. Now, most people, if we, even though you're dispensationalisms, for me to say, what are the seven dispensations? How many of you could have recited those before I just gave them to you? No show of hands. Some of you could have. Some, some of them. Okay, but most of you recognize these three, and these will become very clear to you. The first one is the dispensation of the Mosaic Covenant, generally equated with the Old Testament, okay, loosely. So you have the Mosaic Covenant from the giving of the law to Pentecost, this is the dispensation after the fall where God gave the law to Moses and that carried God's earthly people. That's a very important phrase. Carried God's earthly people until the promise of the Messiah or the advent of the promise of the Messiah by which a new covenant was to be established, okay? The next one is the dispensation of the new covenant. It's what, oh, let me give you some, let me give you some uh, bullet points about this one. Um, the dispensation of the Mosaic co covenant is equated with the law, as we've just said, and therefore confined typically to the Old Testament, all right? And therefore has specifically to do with what? Israel. This is so important in dispensationalism. Israel. Okay? After this, there's the dispensation of the new covenant, which is the advent of Pentecost until the return or the rapture of the church. Okay? Um. Sorry? Well, the, the, there's, in, in dispensationalism, there's kind of a dual return of Christ. There's a mysterial, mysterious return of Christ called the rapture. It's clandestine. He doesn't come all the way to earth. He catches us up in the clouds, and then he takes us to heaven for seven years. Okay? Then there's a physical return of Christ to the earth. So when you're talking to dispensationalists, they will make a differentiation between rapture and return. So that's a good point. Okay? And we'll get to that. Yeah. So dispensation of the new covenant is Pentecost to the, to the rapture. Okay? Pentecost, 
Pentecost, right? Yeah. Pentecost, rapture. Uh, this dispensation of the new covenant or grace. It's easier to just say the dispensation of grace. And this one's grace. All right. And what does it have to do with? It's equated with grace, as I just said. It has to do with the bringing of the Gentiles into salvation because of why? Because Israel's rejection of the Messiah. So Israel rejected the coming of the Messiah, and so God said, all right, I'm going to turn, like Paul did, to the Gentiles, and I'm going to bring in the multitude of the Gentiles. And so many, time, many people, you might hear this phrase, that this right here is called parenthetical eschatology, wherein the church is a parenthesis of God's salvific plan because Israel is really his first and foremost interest. They rejected the Messiah, so now we as a wild olive branch have been grafted into the olive tree, which is Israel, as a parenthetical interlude after which in the millennial reign, Christ, God will pick up his dealings with Israel once again and save the nation of Israel according to Romans 9. Pretty complicated, isn't it? So, but right now we are in, according to dispensational thought, we are in this age right here, the dispensation of grace, the church age. And then there's the millennial reign. And that's the last dispensation. And it is from the return of Christ to the eternal state. Or from the rapture. No, no. From the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ to the eternal state. Okay? And it spans a 1,000, literal 1,000 years on the earth where the temple will be rebuilt on its original site. Where Israel will be restored as the people of God. The Gentile church will be the spiritual people of God who will reign with Christ on the earth. There will be those who do not know God. They will not be allowed into the eternal city. At the end of which, there will be a revolt led by Satan. God will put it down, cast Lucifer into the lake of fire, and the eternal state starts. Okay? That's dispensationalism. All right. The millennial reign. Yeah. Okay. Everybody. Where does the, where does the great tribulation fit? Well, that's interesting. Well, the great tribulation is the seven years between the rapture and the second coming. Okay. So, and we're going to talk about that. That has to do with Daniel's 70 weeks. And so the great tribulation in Scripture, like especially with Matthew 24, is all confined to a small seven-year gap, which is right here. Seven years, okay, and that's when airplanes fall out of the sky and cars run into people because there's nobody driving them anymore. I'm sorry? <laughs> that's why we're going to self-driving cars, because Lucifer knows, and he's getting his, right? Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't make light. Um, yeah, yeah, so then Christ returns physically here at the Battle of Armageddon, 
not even going to try to spell that. Where the, where the Antichrist and the false prophet are dealt with. Lucifer is bound but not destroyed. Then there is a, uh, what was it, paradisical 1,000 year reign with no Lucifer, Jesus physically reigning from the temple in Jerusalem with the Gentile saints who have been raptured previously because they come back with him in spiritual bodies. The sacrificial system from um, given to Moses are reinstated. Um, and uh, yes, Bob. Mm. I think so. <laughs> That's what we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, yes, it does. Um, there, there will be a reinstatement of all of the mosaic activities. There will be a priesthood established. And this is God's redemption of Israel. That's all that the seven, the, the 1,000 years is about is God's redemption of his chosen people, Israel. So because they rejected the Messiah, there is a parenthetical age where the church is brought in, the Gentile church. The church is raptured out here, seven years of absolute chaos in the earth where everything that you saw on that chart happens. There's the bulls, there's the judgments, there's the trumpets, there's the antichrist, there's the, there's the, four, the four horsemen are released, there's a, what is it, um, all of the Jewish witnesses are released, 144,000 Jewish witnesses. There's, yeah, there's, there's a harlot in Babylon. There's two witnesses that come down and they stand in the courtroom uh, the, outside the temple in Jerusalem and they prophesy and they're killed and then they're resurrected and then they're taken up in, the, in front of everybody. And all of that stuff happens right here. Okay. Yeah. Actually, it's only three and a half because the first three and a half is uh, peace. Right. Now you're just confusing things. That's true. All right. Now, in this, there are four real theological issues that you have to understand in order to understand why dispensationalism is such a is such a uh, all-encompassing hermeneutic. The first one of these is it creates a fundamental distinction between the church and Israel. A fundamental distinction between the church and Israel. Okay. Israel is God's chosen people. Physical chosen people. The church is the Gentile church. And it is God's spiritual people. Now, in order for this to happen, what does this entail? What does this absolutely necessitate? If I have two distinct people and God is dispensationally going to work differently with both of these, what does that require? Say it, say it. Two separate salvation plans. It's called redemptive dualism. I'm just telling you. Yeah. 
God has a distinct salvation plan for Israel. How about, how about purple? God has a distinct plan for Israel. It entails all of, the, all of the fulfillment of every promise, physical fulfillment of every promise made to Abraham. Also incorporates the Davidic covenant and all of that. The church, on the other hand, has a completely different salv- salvific plan. This has to do with the reestablishment of the tabernacle, the the um, reestablishment of all the Mosaic law. This has to do with faith, grace, and justification by faith. Two separate salvation plans. Okay? It it requires it. All right? So that's number one. Number two... A fundamental distinction is made between law and grace. Law, grace. And these in dispensationalism are mutually exclusive. They are mutually exclusive. That means that you will hear this quite a bit. This is why I know that dispensationalism has its roots deep within charismatic and evangelical uh, um, systems because we will say we are no longer under the law but under grace we say that all the time we also say I'm a New Testament Christian not an Old Testament Christian we, I hear that all the time by that you are, you are by definition drawing a distinct line between Old Testament and New Testament and saying that the two are diametrically opposed And therefore, there is no continuity between what Old Testament Scripture is foreshadowing and what becomes real by the, in accordance to the foreshadowing in the New Testament. And there is a distinction between what Christ... There's, there is an aberration made on what Christ came to do. Because what we say is he came to fulfill the law that only he had to take care of. Now because we're in him, we have nothing to do with this and we're completely here. How many of you know that the law is still in effect? How many of you know that? By it, God will judge the world. And it's now written on our hearts, no longer on tables of stone. Why does it not directly pertain to us in a sense that we have to follow every jot and tittle of it? Why? Because we are in Christ who did fulfill all the law. Jesus didn't come just to, he didn't come to abolish it. That's a good point. Or happily trip through his life. He, by his life, oh, completely fulfilled this law. So the dispensationalists break this into two separate things. And that destroys a lot of what scripture has to say to us. And it chops up God's salvation plan. The law is just as important to salvation as grace is. That's right. It's the tutor that leads us to Christ. It is what Christ came to fulfill. It is the standard by which God judges the earth. These are all important concepts. So to live in this space where you create a dichotomy between Old and New Testament is dispensationalism. 
Let me just say it as blatantly as I can. Don't do that. Okay? Don't do that. And I don't say that because I want you to do it. I say that for you because you diminish your salvation by doing this. You minimize the full plan of God. There's an old saying in Reformed theology, it takes, all the, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Okay? Three, the view that the New Testament church is a parenthesis in God's plan, which is not foreseen by the Old Testament. So what dispensationalists say, what dispensationalists say is that there is no foreshadowing of the church in the Old Testament because the church is only brought about because Israel unexpectedly rejected the Messiah. Okay? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I'll write it up here. So one is um, a definite distinction between Israel and the Gentile church, two peoples of God. The second one is a fundamental distinction between law and grace. The third one is that the view that the New Testament church is a parenthesis in God's plan of salvation. Okay, It's called parenthetical theology. It's like, and if you look at that chart, God's working with Israel, and then the Messiah comes, and he's, they reject the Messiah, then they're put on hold. Uh, no, they, they, they would say that he did in his foreknowledge, sure. But that the parenthetical, and, and really they would say, to their defense, they would say that this was foreseen by the promises made to Abraham, who would become the father of many nations, and the idea that the Gentiles would be blessed because of Israel. But we're blessed because of Israel. And then they use Romans to suggest that because Israel rejected God, we now have the blessing. So God is using Israel's rejection to bless us. Okay, so there's that whole, we're very, very dependent upon the nation of Israel. As a, as a Gentile church. Very. Okay, so Israel is God's... Israel is God's primary uh, representation of his salvation plan on the earth, right? Jesus came to redeem Israel. Israel rejected him. So... God stopped dealing with Israel and then put them on hold down here. Israel, I'm going to just write it out in non-theological terms. Israel's on hold. Because Israel now rejected Christ here, God turned his attention to the Gentiles. Okay? You're welcome. Um, and he's going to, this is the church age, grace, dispensation, all right? So God is going to deal in, with the Gentiles until the fullness of time has come and, and the Gentiles have been filled until all, the, all of what God has planned. Then God is going to rapture the church out, okay? Rapture. Okay? Rapture the church out. There's a seven-year gap here where God's wrath is poured out on the world, right? After which, 
Israel is then brought up once again and is now dealt with in a millennial reign. Does that make sense? Okay. So what we call this is, this is God's parenthesis. Does that make sense? Is that a better way to do it? Okay. You're welcome. Okay. The other one is that there is a distinction between rapture and second coming. Oh, okay, fourth one. Sorry. <laughs> so, the fourth one is that there is a necessary distinction between rapture and second coming. And that is done so because the, God has to deal with the Gentile church a different way. Okay? So there has to be a way that the church can be taken out so that now God can turn his dealings back to the, to the, to the Israelite, the Israel nation, Israelite nation. Yeah. So, beginning with Revelation 4 1. <coughs> oh, Mike. That's where the rapture takes place in dispensational theology. Revelation 4 1. Yeah. But, yeah, so go ahead, say it again. So, beginning in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, is when dispensational theology would say that the rapture takes place. So, from chapter 4 all the way through the rest of the book of Revelation is therefore that seven-year period and then coming to the millennial reign. Right. That's correct. So all the whole book of Revelation is essentially that... That small time that period. small time yeah. period. Also, Matthew 24 fits into here. Okay? In, in many ways. Matthew 24 is to be understood in a dichotomy. Half of it is just prior to the rapture. The rest of it is after the rapture, after the tribulation of those days. If you, if you, it's better for a pregnant woman uh, to not be pregnant during those days and yada, yada, yada. Those of you on the rooftop come down and run away and all of that. That's all about Israel after the rapture. That speaks of the seven-year tribulation, okay? Everybody okay so far? Go. Okay, uh, we can, um, uh, over the years I've, I've been told that we don't have signs and wonders now because we're in a certain dispensational period. Yeah. And I, I don't see any of that stuff on this list. That's because it doesn't have anything to do with eschatology. Oh? Not in this, not in this particular. That's typically a reformed concept, and the idea is called cessationism. Oh, okay. And, and that is that... And that has to do with after, it's somewhere, let's go right about here, where all the apostles died. Because the, yeah. the, the signs and wonders were specifically for the apostolic, the, the 12, mm -hmm. to establish a foothold in the world for the church. And that when all of them died, so did that kind of thing. And is that where they got the concept that uh, now that we have the written word, we don't need... Uh, well, yeah, there's a lot of concepts in that, but okay. this is outside of the purview. That more is more of a reformed hermeneutic, oh, okay. um, which we don't subscribe to. Okay. Oh, that's good. But that's, that's not in dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is radical outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, I, I thought that was a separate dispensational period or something. No, okay. it's not. Well, well it, it is, but it, it, it doesn't really fit in what we're doing here. Okay. okay, thank you. It's Yeah, it's beyond the apostolic age to the, to the second coming, not rapture. Okay. All right? So the big one in, in 
eschatology and that must be understood is that dispensationalism holds radically to a distinct plan of God for two separate people. That's the big deal with dispensationalism. The whole chart has to do with that. I just summed up the entire chart of Revelation right here. Okay? So it all has to do with how God is going to deal with both the Gentile church and the nation of Israel. Two separate things. Yes? Yes. Yes, and then there will be a final re revolt where Satan is put down and, and finally destroyed. Then there's the eternal state. There's very little information that I can find that tells me what the eternal state looks like. Okay? According to their theology. It doesn't have anything to do with the earth. Heaven and earth will pass away, so there's something out there other than. Okay? So... All right, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes just to ask any parting questions. I have to stop. Um, we'll, we'll pick this up next week. On what? Which one? Distinction between rapture and second coming. So that's very key because it has to do with God's conclusion to the two separate plans. Anybody else? Well, we're finding the mic. Rick, go ahead. Yeah, just so because there are so many godly wise men who hold to this, okay? Yes, there are. Uh, what would you say is the, you already said that it has to do with two different plans of salvation, essentially. Mm -hmm. Would you say that is the reason why we need to understand uh, this hermeneutic as being uh, one that we would, we're not holding to, not teaching. Yes. Um, I would say that one of the big issues, and we didn't get to those today, is because of the problems that this creates theologically. Why is there a reinstitution in the millennial reign of a sacrificial system when Jesus is supposed to have taken care of everything once for all? Okay? Why is there a temple coming down out of heaven when Jesus clearly said, destroy this temple and I, three days I will raise it up. Okay, why, why, is, um, why is there a separation? How can a redeemed people in the, in the, in the state after, after everything has been taken care of abide with sin still there? How can spiritual beings live side by side with national Israel? All of these things are uh, things that we have to address. And I have a list of them that we'll go over next week, but... There are theological reasons that this creates that actually diminish God's salvation, the plan of salvation in Christ Jesus. Jesus is not the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises according to dispensationalism. Yeah, Jesus is not the fulfillment of all of the sacrifices. Jesus is not the fulfillment of all the feasts. Jesus is not the tabernacle of God. Okay? All of these things are really, really detrimental to how we understand the purpose of Jesus Christ as he came to the earth to fulfill everything that was said in the Old Testament. Yes, Bob. You know, 
Yeah, Dean, uh, back to all these details that as you are explaining dispensationalism, uh -huh. uh, I've had relationships with a lot of dispensationalists and they don't have a clue uh, of, of these details that you are expressing. So yep. are these details something that are, that are historically significant, but in the current time are just being ignored from the pulpits of all the churches that are preaching this? No, no. this is the, the root of everything that you're hearing now, from the Tim LaHaye books to the Left Behind books to the idea of why, why people like Hal Lindsey call covenant theology heresy and anti-Semitic. Because... Right now, this is the pervasive thought. And although you can't enunciate all of the different nuances and all of the particulars, most people still hold to that. Most people hold very strongly to the idea. That's why it's so important for most fundamental Christians to hold to the idea that America still supports Israel. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying that that's why it becomes now a politically spiritual charge. That we as a nation must support Israel because in order to do that, we, if we don't do that, we will become cursed by God. According to the Abrahamic covenant. So there's a lot of the way that this particular hermeneutic even affects the way that many people understand what's going on in the world, what's going on in politics, what's going on in the Middle East. Um, how we teach it, how we understand the book of Revelation, how we read Matthew 24, how we read Ezekiel, how we read Zechariah, how we read Daniel. All of those things are all wrapped up in this dispensational the uh, hermeneutic. So you're saying some of these preachers are indeed emphasizing that Christ did not fulfill... They would not uh, say that specifically. Well, that's what I'm getting to because that's quite shocking, I, I, I think. But it is when you break it down into its rudimentary, uh, into its, its, its granular elements, when you, when you break it down and distill it down to what it fundamentally says, why else would you reestablish the sacrificial system in a millennial reign? Why would you do that? Why would you set up a physical temple on the earth? So you have to ask those questions. Most people don't ask those questions. That's just the bottom line. Most people don't. So the, my purpose here today is to say, let's ask those questions. Let, let's understand what this does to what Jesus really did. Because it, this, in my estimation, and it's just me, this is a slap in the face to what Jesus accomplished. I'm just saying it, that, you know, it is a slap in the face to what Jesus accomplished. It says that his work is insufficient, that his sacrifice was insufficient, that he is not the, 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 the seed of Abraham, that he is not the tabernacle of God. It says all of these things. And I, and I think that that's, most people would not say that, as you just said, but that's the truth of what lies at the root of this. And we'll talk about that next week.